Thank you for pressing play on another episode of A-Sides. I'm Andy, and for episode 96, I spoke with Joshua Ketchmark, who has a new album being released on July the 8th, titled Blood. We get into a lot of his background growing up in central Illinois, where I'm also from. We also talk about plenty of his other EPs and albums and all the work that he's done between Nashville and L.A. A lot of topics to fit into an hour. I had a blast talking to Joshua, and I hope you enjoy it as well. And cue music. I don't know how many of you have heard, but there's a flesh-eating virus going around. Yeah, it's called music. I'm hanging taking the time to talk to me tonight because yeah. it, it's been a while and i know i've been bugging you for a while <laughs> it's all good <laughs> cool well to start off i had read your bio and something really stood out to me you said that you're the whisper in the hall and i kind of thought that like that really describes you because i've heard about you for years through like denny and bob and it seems like You've been friends with them so long, and I just heard your name come up, and I think I even almost met you, but I'm not sure, at the show where they performed at the Cowan, because you took a photo, and they've used that for uh, posters. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was there. I've heard about you, but I never really, like, properly met you, so I feel like the whisper in the hall kind of, like, describes you. Well, next time I'm up there, or you're down here, we can we need to fix that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh I seem to uh that seems to be my my thing, man. I, I always say just comfortably flying under the radar. You know, I, I feel pretty lucky that I've finally gotten to a place where I can kind of do whatever I want to do. Kind of my own own boss these days. So uh, so you don't really have like the expectations you would or like artists would with like a label where you got to pump something out all the time or you got to be touring all the time, right? You can kind of do your own uh, projects, whatever kind of comes your way, right? Yeah, it's it's nice because I can, if I'm working on something for me, I can work on something for me. And if something comes up with an artist that I would, you know, that I really want to work with, um, you know, I can always, There's there's no real expectations at this point. Um, except my own, you know, to get something done. And I have a hard time saying no. You know, I, I always like to, um, if somebody needs help with something, I always, you know, I, I try to help in whatever way I can, whether it's, you know, if it's music or, you know, pictures or something, if there's some way that I can help somebody. Um, because I've been a solo artist now since um, 2008. And... I really kind of, I really kind of have my hands in pretty much everything, and always have. Anything that comes out, I've I've been involved in some way, shape, or form. Um, 
in its creation, whether it's, you know, a video or something and coming up with concepts and then helping out with editing or, you know, most of the production and the music end I've kind of been involved with since, you know, the songwriting and everything else. But I, I feel like a, a lot of that, you know, having to wear so many hats, mm-hmm. it's good to have, you know, that experience. I, if, if I can help somebody else who, you know, needs a little bit of help, I feel like I've, I've got a little bit of a skill set that I can, you know, fall back on to, to kind of help. So, and it's, I don't know, it, it's cool. It, it does something for me that being an artist doesn't. I, I really think that that's kind of, kind of special. You mean helping too, like, cause you got your own studio. So you mean helping like a mix stuff or uh produce stuff? Yeah. I can track everything here. Usually um, the way it's worked, you know, since, um, my studio in Nashville is Black Old Speakeasy, and it's been that since uh, 2013, so almost, you know, probably like nine years now, something like that. And usually the way we do it, depending on how the tracks come in and whoever the artist is, you know, what they need for whatever it is that they're finishing. But the way that usually works the best is we'll go into a bigger studio like Sound Emporium in town or something like that. We'll do basic tracks. Um, you know, book two days out, we'll get basic tracks, we'll get drums and have everybody else kind of play live so we can get a good feel and then bring everything to my studio and we'll do overdubs and stuff there. Not everybody really, or overdubs and stuff here, not everybody really needs that though. You know, some guys come in and they just, you know, they need some mix work or, you know, maybe they just need some stuff help with some edits or some stuff being arranged or you know, want to track some guitars or, you know, something. Um, everything's different, you know. Uh, sounds like you're like a jack of all trades uh, uh, then with that. Maybe. I've never really thought about it that way. I've just realized that it, at this stage in the game, it's more about, you know, kind of helping helping people out. And, you know, my whole artist thing is, I've said since, was it 20, 2016, I there's a record called all she wrote that I released and that was aptly titled because that was going to be my last record. And then I was just going to stop. I just moved to Nashville from LA. I started that record in LA and I was finishing it up here, which Kenny Wright from the great affairs produced. And that was going to be my last record. And I was just going to hang my hat up. Oh, wow. That's and an awesome record. Thank you. I was ready to do it and I just can't. It's like one of those things that'd be like cutting off one of my arms or, you know, trying to learn how to breathe through my toe or something, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not, I, I, I just, I've given up on the notion that it's something that I've done so long that it's just part of who I am now. I don't see ever, ever stopping. So I'll probably be still releasing records when I'm, you know, if I make it to 80 there'll still be a new Joshua Ketchmark record coming out at some point, I would guess. I just thought of something silly, like like that Charlton Heston thing. They'll have to take the guitar from my cold, dead hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, something like that. Well, you grew up yeah. back here in uh, central Illinois. Like, Did you know you wanted to do this when you were um, growing up? N- neither one of my parents were really that into music. You know, I remember my mom putting on... I think I like Peter, Paul, and Mary or something on Sundays when she'd clean the house. And I found an old acoustic guitar under the steps. And 
I remember I, you know, for a while I just used to run around with it and then started taking lessons and I kind of got interested in it for a little bit and then I kind of stopped. And the second time that I picked it back up, I just, I never put it back down. You know, I guess I would, I would say from a pretty young age, I kind of, kind of knew that this was what I was going to do. You know, I kind of made my mind up and kind of everybody else that said, well, you know how hard that's going to be, you know, uh, you know how many other people are out there, you know, uh, anybody that kind of gave me any slight hint of, no, you shouldn't do it, only fueled the fire more of, well, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do it, you know, I'm, I'm going to ride it as far as I can, as far as I can take it. Like trying to prove them wrong? The easiest way to get me to do something is to tell me not to, usually. <laughs> I uh, I moved down to Nashville with Denny Smith and Shannon Tasser and, you know, a handful of guys from back there. Oh, damn. Some of the guys from the group kind of stayed and some of the guys kind of moved back. You know, I was down here for about eight years before I moved to L.A. Always, you know, had had, had my sights set ever since I was a kid that L.A. was where I was going. That seemed to be the perfect excuse to pack up and and go. So, in, you know, in my mind, the way I remember it, it was about six months of driving back and forth and going back and forth. And then finally, I was like, I'm just going to move. That's where I want to go anyway. So. Oh, you were um, driving back and forth from uh, Tennessee to California? Yeah, we we started we flew a couple of times and then. I I always seem to remember him coming down here and then we drove from here. But there's a couple of times um, that I went up to Illinois and I think that we took the northern route through Colorado at least once because we ran out of gas outside of Denver oh, damn. <laughs> uh, one night and we were, uh, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that cold and it, it wasn't that bad, but we, uh, we had to hoof it to the gas station and yeah, it was, a, it was a lot of driving and it was, it was cool. It was, it was a cool introduction to LA. I guess that's a lot of time to spend uh, in a car too. Did you, did you know yeah. Denny before that or did you get to know him through those drives? I've known Denny since I was 17. Shandel Tassert and I, who's another uh, central Illinois guy, had put an ad up at Flory's Music looking for a guitar player. Denny Smith answered the ad. We all ended up jamming for a while in my basement. I mean, that's how I met Denny. I guess I didn't totally know all that backstory, but I know all the names you mentioned, uh, the Tassert brothers. Yeah, I just saw Shannon this last weekend, too. They were all over at the park watching Will Hogue play. Oh, cool. I've I've heard that guy's name um, over the years, but I never actually checked him out. He's pretty cool. There, there's a, a couple of records that I really like. I like the Sevens record, and I like the Wreckage record. They're a little bit older. Um, and I'm not sure if he's got something new coming out, and that's why he's out playing right now, or if he was just doing the show to do the show. I'll have to check him out. I wrote down that record you mentioned. It's it's pretty cool. I dig him. He's you know a local guy, but I remember when I lived here, the first time he used to be in a band um, called Spoonful that used to play around town a lot. And then after I moved to L.A., I saw his record one day, I think in like Tower Records or somewhere that he had gotten signed to Atlantic as a solo artist. So that's oh, pretty cool. cool. 
You had mentioned going back to like driving back and forth from Nashville to California. I guess the time you're doing that in Nashville wasn't like a rock town kind of or more of a music hub like it is. So you probably would have had to make it in California, right? The first time I lived here, the joke was always that, you know, Nashville had a bunch of country music stars, but had a bunch of rock bands. Oh, yeah. You know, there's a whole bunch of industry here and decent, you know, kind of rock thing going on from what I remember. But I mean, nothing like it is now. I've been here this second time, eight years, and the town has totally changed in eight years, you know, in that short of time. So, and I don't remember the first time, uh, the first time I was here, it wasn't changing that rapid, you know, that rapidly like it is now. So when you went out to California, that's probably some of the stuff I came across in your bio where you cleaned out like Pat Benatar's garage and it seemed like you were like doing so much studio work. There's like a list of names that you mentioned. How did you end up cleaning out Pat Benatar's garage? Brian Wong, who played in the band that Denny and I were in, he played bass. He ended up working with her on a couple of things. I think he was doing some personal assistant stuff. And it just so happened that that day she needed something out of her garage. And he was like, hey, man, I'm going over to, you know, Pat Benatar's house. You know, he's like, you want to come over and help out? And like I said before, I don't really like saying no to anything. (laughs) And it's Pat Benatar. Even if you're cleaning out her garage, you're still cleaning out Pat Benatar's garage. It's pretty cool. You know, when I was first in L.A., I applied to pretty much everywhere I could possibly get a job and just had the worst time. And I ended up starting to work with a guy named Brett Allen who had a studio rental company that would deliver gear to people's studios. You know, all the famous studios around town. He had tons of gear. According to him, he had the, you know, the Marshall that Slash played on Appetite for Destruction. He had the 12-string that Melissa Etheridge played on all her hits, you know. He was like that level of guy that was renting out all this gear, and he had, like, the coolest stuff you could possibly see just lined up case after case, just stacked to the ceiling. It was crazy. So I started working for him, you know, delivering gear to the studios and getting to know people at the front desk and kind of bumping into producers here and there. I still remember he handed me a Peterson strobe tuner which I had never seen before in my life. It was Tuesday, I remember, because he goes, I'm not even going to try to do his accent because I'm terrible with accents. But he was like, Josh, on Thursday, you're in the studio with Jack Joseph Puig. You need to learn how to use this. Okay. You know, once again, I'm not going to say no to something. I knew of Jack Joseph Puig's stuff. He was in A and Ocean Way on Sunset Boulevard. And I was more nervous about being in the studio with Jack Joseph Puig than actually, you know, tuning and teching guitars. That for whatever reason, something in my brain made sense to take a five string guitar and instead of tuning the low string to B, I tune the high string with the G to B on the high side. So I totally flipped the tuning on it. And I was so nervous at that time. And then you have that like one moment of clarity when he's like, all right, like we're ready for bass. We're ready to go. And I'm like, I did this totally backwards. I, this is totally wrong. So I retuned it and got it back in there to him. 
went through it and everything was cool. The phone rings. It was Brett calling to check up on me, you know, make sure, making sure everything was cool. Brett was with Rob Cavallo. Rob Cavallo's done a ton of bands, uh, you know, Green Day, Goo Dolls. He's got a huge uh, credit list. Jack got off the phone and said, this has nothing to do with you. He's like, the bass is playing perfectly in tune. Everything is great. He's like, but um, Brett's going to come back over here. And so you need to go over to record one in the valley and work with Rob. So I went from working with Jack Joseph Puig in the afternoon to working with Rob Cavallo at night. It was really eye-opening because the guitar tech is essentially there the entire time. You know, you got to oh, be yeah. there when they, when they track drums because you got to make sure that the band is in tune. Sometimes, or, you know, I guess it depends on the producer, but sometimes you're even there when they do vocals because they might hear something you know, there might be a hole someplace that they can put a guitar line. It was kind of like, you know, being a fly on the wall, seeing how they do all these things and, you know, how it all kind of how it all comes together. So it was kind of an invaluable experience. I mean, I had worked with Johnny Lang and Melissa Etheridge and Fuel. So it was cool, especially for like only being in L.A. for 18 months at that point or a year. Dang, sounds like you kind of did a lot in a short amount of time. It was one of those things where after it happened, I guess, as Brett said, it was sink or swim time. And, and you know, he was happy that I swam. So Sounds like he could trust you, too, if you went from, from one job in the uh, morning to then the Rob Cavallo one later in, in the same day, too. He's a good guy. He's, he's a really good guy. He, uh, even after... I've stopped working for him. I would, you know, because he has more gear than, like I said, than anybody I've seen um, ever. <laughs> we still kept in touch. So when I started doing my records, I would call him up and, you know, be like, hey, Brett, you still got that great sound in 12 string? And he'd be like, the one that Melissa always uses? Yeah, just come over and get it. He was just such a generous guy. Really kind of, kind of lucky with that whole situation. I'm not totally like, I don't really know anything about like gear. I'm, I just, I just listen to music. So when you said that you had accidentally like at first tuned that backwards and did the G and the B or whatever, if you hadn't had that moment of clarity and fixed it, would it have like, how would it have sounded? Like it would have just. It would have been bad. The bass would have been, all the strings wouldn't have been tuned appropriately to where they should have been. So when the bass player would have started to play, say, a D note, it wouldn't have been a D. Oh, um, everything would have been flipped. Yeah. yeah. So it would have made me look real bad. And that, like I said, uh, Brett telling me sink or swim, I would have sank. Something in my head was looking out for me. It all worked out. So, yeah, that moment of clarity, I guess, was like you were meant to progress in the um, music Yeah, maybe. Business. Yeah. Uh, I guess thinking about it now, you know, being I don't really like to say no to too many things. There was all kinds of situations that would come up, work with Kiss. There's a laundry list of bands and stuff at that time because I was new in L.A. And, you know, I was just really trying to get established and really just taking anything that I could possibly take. I guess, yeah, um, you can't say no either because you got to pay the bills and you got to eat uh, too right yeah you gotta... yeah and you know when you're working freelance like that you don't really know where your next gig is coming or when it's coming 
there were a couple of times where I thought about leaving, but I was like, man, you, you made it all the way out here. You know, you're, you're kind of where you want to be. You need to stay. And it would usually be just when I was about to that point where I was like, uh, I, I just don't think it's going to work out. The next day I'd get a call. Oh, wow. Literally the next day, you know, in my romantic mind or whatever, I always just thought that that was LA telling me, man, you don't, you know, you need to stick it out. Um, I can you know, admire I, that because uh, I would have liked to do something like that or like I can you know, go further in radio, but I'm always like afraid like I need that safety net of like the nine to five or the uh, the job security, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, so I admire you going out and just going for it. Most of the time that I was freelancing in those early days in L.A., I was couch surfing, too. So I didn't have my own place when I started looking for my own place employers started asking well you're freelance you know you need to you need to have a job um not employers i'm sorry uh the rental agents the people you know trying to they like were like the landlords or whatever yeah that's where i'm going i'm drinking coffee man and i'm waiting for it to kick in uh, <laughs> well you kind of triggered something that i was actually gonna ask you too i'd written down you mentioned coffee. So your studio, Black Gold, is that like Black Gold, like coffee? Is that where you got the name? Yeah. There's a quote in a movie, and I'm usually pretty good at these things. And clearly the coffee is not working as fast as it should be. But there's a quote in a movie where somebody says one line. He's essentially just like, I just need a need a cup of old Black Gold, and I'll be, you know, and I'll be good to go. I always kind of like that, so... I just stole the first part of it and, you know, thought that the speakeasy part was kind of nice. This studio got put together. A friend of mine and I did it. And I just wanted to have, like, record quality gear. Like, I wanted the best gear that I could get so I didn't have to go to a studio. I guess now, yeah, you can wake up and just go to work in your pajamas or something. Yeah, you can just, you got the comfort of you don't have the transit time or whatever. You'd have to drive somewhere and that would cut into your studio time. Yeah, and I mean, it's a lot, it's a lot easier if somebody needs something and, you know, if somebody needs a mix or somebody needs this or somebody needs that, I don't, I'm not getting in the car to drive over the studio and then send it and then driving back home. I'm just so comfortable with it now that I just don't think, I don't ever think about moving it out. You know, some people would be like, oh, your studio's in your house. You have a home studio. Yeah, I have a home studio, you know. It's called Black Gold Speakeasy. Emphasis on the speakeasy, man. You know, <laughs> you're not really supposed to know it's there. It's, there's a secret handshake at the door. If you don't know the secret handshake, you know, that, that might not, you might not see it. Um, <laughs> And you're the whisper in the hall, too, so it kind of goes along with that with speakeasy. Flying under the radar, man. The studio's pretty comfortable. It's totally getting redone now. We, uh, you know, just did some cosmetic stuff right now, but I've got a whole bunch of new gear showing up and got a new desk and new cabling and new everything. So I'm pretty excited about it now. Right now I'm sitting in it, but it's stripped down and there's boxes and stuff all over the floor. It's, It's uh kind of weird uh with the black gold and then you're drinking coffee now are you like a big uh, coffee lover are you like an aficionado i usually find one thing i like and i could just kind of stick with it so maybe that just makes me a creature of habit was trying out um, a couple of different coffees and i came across death wish i've just kind of stuck with death wish 
I think it's been like two years now. It's supposed to be the strongest co coffee on the planet, but for all I know, they, they could all say that if you read the back of the bag. It's just good but, marketing uh, or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Gotta have it. I mean, that's pretty much my, my go-to. I think I just need it because I, uh, I gave up soda actually like two and a half years ago. And then I started drinking coffee because I think I need the caffeine. Then at first, like, I guess I was throwing in a lot of creamer. So I didn't know if I just was more addicted to the creamer. So I kind of weaned myself <laughs> off. But I guess now I'm drinking it black. So I guess I've kind of progressed. Yeah, that's oh. awesome. Man, I used to drink soda all the, all the time. Now I, I don't really touch it, except here lately I've uh, stopped. I stopped drinking, man, ten months ago. Really good. I kind of didn't do it for really any other reason except just I was just going to take, you know, a break and try and get a little bit healthier. And I had a handful of studio things pop up, and the older I get, my body just does not respond to those late nights uh, drinking like it used to. I had that point where I was like, I've got way too much to do than to spend tomorrow feeling terrible. You know, I can't get up late and I can't, you know, not be on my game. And so I stopped drinking and two weeks ended up becoming a month. And then it was two months. And then before I knew it, it was five months. And, and now I'm now I'm just kind of down to that thing where I'm like, well, I've come this far. Might as well see if I can make it a year. Well, good job, man. Thank you. I get so much more done. I work a couple jobs. Like I, I do a full-time job. Then I got radio. And so I used to like, I used to just be all over the place. So yeah, it's like I couldn't afford to be hung over. Cause I'm like, Oh, well, you know, I got stuff to do the next day. I can't just yeah. uh, crash on the couch all day. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Didn't you just go to the, uh, pumpkins thing? Didn't you say you were going to a pumpkins thing? Oh, yeah, that was Memorial Day weekend. Yeah, the radio station that I work for, they were going to have a table out there and giving out, like, uh, shirts and, like, koozies and just, like, promotional stuff. But they said, well, if you want to see any of the bands that weekend, then you, you got to kind of work for it or whatever. I guess they'll scratch your back if you scratch theirs or whatever. So uh, most yeah. of the bands are... It was like it was like a festival thing where it's camping and stuff, and a lot of it's, like, a bunch of jam bands, like Mo. And Umphreys McGee, but then they actually had a Smashing Pumpkins headline and a Bones Thugs and Harmony. So but those were the two groups I ended up seeing. That's cool. It was kind of interesting. And I actually had a thought since it was like a rap act and then a rock act. I actually had a thought and like, I'll just run it by you to see if this actually makes sense or anything. Because uh, I was thinking, yeah. I go to like a lot of rock shows, right? And I love going to like live music, but I think maybe being so into certain bands, you'll go, um, like my friends and I will go look at the setlist website online and we're like, oh man, they're not playing this or they're playing these certain songs. So we almost kind of get like, it hurts our expectations for the show. Well, as yeah. the people who are seeing Bone Thugs and Harmony or the other jam bands, they're just feeling the music and even Bone Thugs, I don't know if they actually did a whole lot of their own songs in their set, but they, I know they covered basically, like they went into like a Nelly song and like Snoop Dogg, and I think they did something else. And it's like, if that was at a rock show and you're paying to see a rock band and all they're doing is covers, you'd be kind of pissed off or something. You'd be like, 
I want to hear this hit or I want to hear this B-side from this certain album. But all the people yeah. seeing the rap shows, they're just into it and feeling the music. Where I was going with that thought was maybe, I guess they got it right. They just go and they just experience the music. Yeah, but I can also relate to what you're saying. Uh, I went to the Ryman one year to see Jason Isbell. Oh yeah, he's great. That Southeastern record for me kind of changed, you know, after hearing that, kind of changed the way I looked at songwriting, you know, up to that point. And I was way into that record and he had just released something more than free, which I wasn't too crazy about when I first heard it. And our daughter, my girlfriend and I, our daughter was, you know, she's seven now, but I think she was, she was pretty young, you know, maybe one or two. And so we figured we'd get out of the house for the night and we went to the Ryman to see Jason Isabel. And I was like, kind of like what you were saying i didn't look online or anything beforehand but i was like man well i hope he, you know i hope he plays cover me up or elephant or i hope you know any of these other songs from you know southeastern we get there lights go down he comes out and he was like tonight we're gonna play something more than free from front to back oh wow that's all we're playing yeah which was cool except i didn't like that record i wanted to hear the other record so i was kind of like Kind of like what you were saying. I was like, oh, man. Like, really? Because, you know, when he plays the rhyme, and I think they, they're up to, like, I'll probably get this wrong, but I think they're up to, like, six or eight nights now consecutively. Oh, wow. Um, that they play. Like, they're essentially there for, I think, a little over a week. So the one night that we went was the one night he picked to kind of play the record that I really was not that into. I was trying to think of a word to describe what I was, what my thought was, but yeah, maybe, maybe we're just too up our own butts or something. I don't know if that even makes any sense. Maybe. But was it, was it a good show though, seeing him um, doing that, even though it wasn't like what you expected? Yeah. His, I mean, his band is, uh, his band's really great. You know, they're all really good players and, you know, even if it's not my favorite record of his, he's still a great songwriter, you know. Um, yeah. So it was it was still uh, it was still really cool to see. I was, you know, I was happy. Yeah. On your new album that's coming out, Blood, um, I think Sadler Vaden is performing on it on your album. Yeah, he's he's on eight songs. Um, oh, wow. Which is really pretty awesome. He uh, I, I feel like his name has been circling now uh, since like 2016 as far as like possibly working together kind of through friends of a friend and this time it just happened to work out when i started working on blood i'd had a handful of shows booked and then lockdown and COVID happened and i can't remember the place now i had like a theater show in la that i was flying out for and that got canceled like two days before i was supposed to go and I was like, well, if it, you know, if everything's canceling, I'll just shift gears and I'll start working on, you know, blood because it had been sitting on the shelf um, for, you know, like six months at that point or something or, or maybe a year. And I was like, I'll just I'll switch gears and start doing that. You know, I sent the pre-production out and then we just started flying tracks. You know, my drummer in L.A. would do the drums and send them to me and then I, you know, send him changes and. We just kind of worked it all like that 
and it was actually really cool. You know, get everybody's interpretation of where their head kind of takes them. And as far as, you know, Sadler's stuff, I tried to use as much as I could. He just really has a great ear. Really, everybody that's on the record is really brought it to the next level. I'm really confident with this record, and uh, I really feel like everybody really, really nailed it. Oh, awesome. And yeah, it sounds like this album is about your youth and growing up back here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, there's a song called Death Trap that is essentially about, you know, right around the time I was in high school, what we we're kind of talking about earlier about finding music and, you know, that whole starry eyed kind of thing. And for whatever reason, you know, my, my first job was at Hardy's in Creef Coor, which I don't oh, wow. think is there anymore. I think it's a liquor store. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it but, is. <laughs> but like I, I remember, you know, you drive past Hardy's and you're going down the hill right there. Um, I can't remember what's all down there. Um, but you're going down the hill right there. And for whatever reason, that Death Trap song, there's parts of that that remind me of that. And there's there's something right around that time of, you know, I've been playing, uh, jamming with some guys out in Glassford and Kingston Mines. So there's a Kingston Mines line in Death Trap. The opening song, No Stopping Us, is about you know right after high school you know just graduating um high school and there was a summer right after high school or right that that summer right after we graduated i was hanging out with like glenn denham and terry hickman and doing what i guess you know crazy kids do there's there's a handful of things on this record that all kind of relate to that relate to growing up and then there's some stuff that you know still has its roots as far as the songwriting goes in central Illinois, but deals more with coming back, you know, after I moved to LA. Is this the first album that you've really written about yourself like that or in that depth? There is a handful of singles that I've released that are, you know, autobiographical and stuff like that. But I really wanted to get a whole record out like that, which it, which is this record that I just didn't think I'd be able to write. I didn't think I'd be able to do. You know, pulling off one song is one thing, but pulling off 12, that that's something for me that is a, definitely a something to be risen to, you know. Kind of feel like at least for for me, maybe not the listener, but for me, that you know, they're all there. They're, they're, all the tunes are definitely there. Well, hopefully people embrace it and love it and dig it. You've got like a list of great players on there. Sadler's on there. But then like Kenny, he's on there too, right? Yeah, Kenny's singing some backups on there. He's singing on two songs, singing some harmonies. And then Michael Webb is playing some keys and some organ. He's played on all kinds of stuff. Uh, he played on the last Dave Howes. He's played on Chris Stapleton's stuff. You know, he's great. The drummer that I've been pretty much working with now for, man, 10 years off and on, Zach St. John, you know, he's played with everybody. He's he's just got a huge list. I'm pretty sure he's a Black Star writer now. I watched the video yesterday. I was like, oh, there's Zach. That's awesome. <laughs> so proud of him. Yeah, they just announced this week, actually, that their new album's coming out. and But I don't think it's for another six months or so, but... It's out for pre-orders and stuff now, but 
you had said earlier, like, I guess because some of your stuff, I've only listened to it online. I don't have the album credits because that's one thing we were talking about too earlier with even, um, you mentioned Rob Cavallo. I've seen his name before because I actually do like buying albums because I'll look over every inch or centimeter of all the credits and I remember like, oh yeah, this guy produced such and such. So I guess unfortunately with yours, I'm kind of missing that. But I didn't know that Kenny uh, produced your album, All She Wrote. He came out to L.A. We started that at Sunset Sound with another buddy of mine who now lives here, Morgan Stratton. We started that there with actually Zach playing drums on on that as well. Oh, cool. And it was one of those things, you know, for a long time all the way up to, to Blood, I'm usually working on multiple records. So if I'm in the mix stage of one record, I'm in production on another record of mine like i usually have stuff on the shelf there's stuff kind of waiting in different stages of completion right after we tracked the basic tracks for that that was like around thanksgiving of 2012 2013 i came here and uh did a week at switchyard with michael st leon and tracked some stuff and some other you know players came in you know denny smith played on that as well on all she wrote i can't remember what was all done at switchyard right now i I know the majority of the tracking or the early tracking was done there and then i went back to la and kenny stayed here and continued to work on it and uh get overdubs you know bring players in and all the rest of that but kenny was really integral and had so many great ideas and production on there is you know come straight from his head which i think is a great strength of his i've always thought it's a great strength of his it is a cool album yeah like i dig it and i don't know if i'm hearing things or uh what because i don't always know what i'm hearing but i got like a bon jovi vibe from it almost like that one album it's like these days laid back rock like that yeah that's cool that's really cool i was listening to i'm trying to think what all i was listening to back then it was definitely some some petty Definitely listen to some Tom Petty around that time. I did scratch that down because there was one uh, song. I think it was the call. I was like, like that sounds kind of like Petty. Yeah, there's there's definitely some Petty influence on there. Definitely some Bon Jovi influence. I was a pretty big Bon Jovi fan for a while, so that's a huge compliment. Thank you. Oh, cool. And then too, what you were saying, how you were saying you actually have stuff that you're like writing and you're in different stages at the time. You sound just like Denny where I'll talk to him. It sounds like he's the same way. He like writes songs, but he's like, well, I don't know if this is going to sound like a solo thing or if this is going to sound like a great affairs thing. So I just have them, all these things categorized different. And you guys even did like the Laramore's thing too last year. I mean, there's a whole record worth of Laramore's stuff that's sitting on the shelf as well um when that first came up and we were doing that that writing together it was fun just to you know write songs together i always told him that you know before the whole laramore's thing happened i was like man you should just use these for there's so many i mean i just use them for a solo record or a great affairs record or something and he was pretty adamant that he wanted to you know put it out as a as a duo Kenny played on Over the Moon out of those four songs. So Kenny's always in the mix somewhere. (laughs) And yeah, you guys even, somehow I came across a CD. I think it was from Bob Long because he's, 
he's got so much stuff. I think he like gave me the CD and it was Social Kings. That's going back. So when I first moved to Nashville the first time, Kenny and the other guy that was in that band, Nick, were in a band called Prodigal Sons. They were great. I mean, just great. At amazing songs. I mean, still to this day, the songs are great. I don't know exactly how that band ended, but it ended and uh, Nick and Kenny decided that they were going to put together a new band and they had been in the studio recording stuff and they just needed another guitar player. You know, I just, I just happened to be the guy that ended up, you know, joining and, and doing that. So, of course, Kenny's in the Great Affairs now and Nick plays in a band called Bone Pony, which actually Kenny used to play in Bone Pony. And then, yeah, it's like, I think you've even got that Nick. He's on your new album, too. So it's like almost like everybody's history. You guys are all weaved together somehow. I like to keep it in the family. You know, uh, yeah. being a solo artist, it isn't like I, I don't really have a band, which is kind of a blessing and a curse sometimes. I can kind of do whatever I want. I don't have anybody to answer to or nobody to, no drama, nobody to really cater to. But, you know, I also don't really have a sounding board when I really start getting into the into the thick of it sometimes it's nice to get a little input and you know have somebody else hear it and listen to it and get their feedback on it I just always like to if I can I always like including those guys so they must so, know the uh, secret handshake then <laughs> definitely definitely I don't want to keep it too long but I got a few other little questions we're good to go for as long as you want to Oh, okay. I guess the first question that I have is, so growing up, what was your first CD that you listened to? Or like album back at the time, like vinyl? The first record that I remember, my parents weren't super into music. So going through and kind of like raiding their, you know, their LPs and stuff. I remember seeing With the Beatles, the cover of With the Beatles. But the first, the first like music that I remember listening to that wasn't on like the radio or whatever was queen the game oh, i found cool. an eight track of queen the game in the other side of the stereo when i was going through and so my parents had like queen news of the world that i remember and i love i love the game i mean i still love the game that was kind of my first introduction to, to something that wasn't you know my mom cleaning house listening to peter paul and mary or something you know something like that but yeah i mean that's that's the one that sticks out to me the most oh cool what was yours I'm the same way. I don't have any older like siblings or anything, so a lot of the music that I heard when I was growing up was usually stuff that was just on the radio or whatever my dad had on in his uh, truck. But the first actual cassette that I heard was Michael Jackson's Bad, because I won that in a coloring contest. <laughs> but my first rock CD was way later in the 90s. It was the Black Album from Metallica. Oh, I remember that. That's cool. I'm kind of like I, a, a late bloomer with music. Well, you got got to find what you like. Sometimes that's tricky. Didn't you work at co-op too? So that would you would yeah. be exposed to like a lot of music through that, right? Denny and I worked at co-op with. I'm pretty sure Bob Bob Wong hired me. I think who else worked there? Like Ryan Rose worked there, and yeah, that, those were good times. The Evergreen Store and the Campus Town Store. From what I remember, I worked at both of them for a while. Yeah, it was cool. And and you're right. I mean, so much music coming through there. And 
like you said earlier, Bob has like everything under the sun and knows so much about everything else. I always remember him coming in with whatever band it was that I was into and he'd have some out of print single or something that he got, you know, has three of or something in the back of his garage or some. He just always had such cool stuff. Those were good days. That was fun. I first was going to his store, uh, Shandy's out in Canton. I would go out there for a while. It was kind of a drive, but it was worth it because I'd always drop like, I don't know, like a hundred bucks each time and (laughs) find something cool. Growing up here in central Illinois, did you see any concerts back in the day too? Yeah. My first concert was White Lion and Aerosmith. Aerosmith was on permanent vacation. Oh, damn. Um, And White Lion was on Pride and that was at the Civic Center. At the time, I went to to see the opener i went to see white lion then aerosmith came on and man i was really happy that i got to see that getting to see aerosmith on permanent vacation they're great yeah that's an awesome first concert um aerosmith i mean yeah that would have like kicked anybody in the butt (laughs) (laughs) but yeah that was my first show what was yours like how i said i i was a late bloomer my first concert was 2003 at the civic center and it was Journey and Ario and Stick. So obviously, oh, wow. uh, they weren't at like their peak or whatever. Aerosmith, though, that was like right when they were blowing up again. I remember that I went with my dad because I had a friend from school and we got tickets. And then he didn't, and he wasn't able to go for some reason. And I was pretty bummed. And my dad was like, well, I'll go with you so that you have somebody to go with, which was really cool. And I think my dad dug it, you know? My dad was pretty into it, so. How old were you then? Wow, seventh grade. Seventh grade, eighth grade, something like that. You probably couldn't go by yourself. Yeah, going by myself was not gonna happen, so that's that's why I was all bummed about uh, not seeing the show, and I can't remember why my buddy didn't end up going. Did you see any other things back in the uh, day at the Civic Center? Because I know, like, a kiss came around a lot. and I remember seeing the Colt on Sonic Temple. I still love that record. And there were a handful of those, like, three-bill kind of things with, like, I don't know, like, Bullet Boy's Winger. And I think it was Cinderella on Long Cold Winter. And Cinderella was cool from what I remember. But, man, I was so young back then, you know? I was so young back then that anything was cool. Any type of spectacle. Going to see a rock show of of that grandiose caliber in an arena, it was cool. So you said the Colt, they played Peoria? I'm pretty sure it was the Colt on Sonic Temple. Oh, damn. Because that's one band that I... I don't know if I technically have a bucket list, but that's one band that I have yet to see. And it's like, they always seem to play Chicago and it's usually a night where I'm doing something else or it's like a Tuesday and I can't really make the drive up on like a, a school night or whatever. So it's like that's one band that I still really want to see. I want to say that they were headlining. I think somebody else opened. They were cool. I've seen them a handful of times over the years. You know, like seeing a band on that type, you know, that that biggest stage and stuff. is It's just it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Especially with the pandemic, like I've missed out on that feeling of seeing huge, like, you know, the arena shows. I haven't really seen a lot since, oh God, the last like uh, three years or so. I'm right there with you. 
I haven't really been out for much of anything. You know, my my day, like I was saying earlier, is a little bit of a groundhog day type situation where I'm usually always working on something. I, I don't really, I really haven't been out to see as many shows as I would like. Now I keep on saying that I need to change that. I need to change that. But then something else comes up that I end up getting involved with and and then I kind of put that aside for a little bit. So I just need to start buying tickets to whatever it is that I see that pops up and then just like put them on the refrigerator or something. The first show, you know, when everything shut down a couple years ago and then Denny and the guys, they put out that last record and they were going to play in Indiana. And I went to go see them. I don't know how to pronounce it. Boca Lounge or Buca Lounge, but they played there. And then they were saying that you used to go and like play an open forum there. Like right before all that, the year before the pandemic hit, I was trying to play as many gigs as I could possibly get. And then the next year I was going to try and double it. So I played Boca a couple of times with them. And it's always fun, you know, because I get to ride, you know, ride, riding up with them in the van. I get to feel like I'm in a band again, at least for a little bit, you know, even though I know I'm not in the band, I still get to hang out with all the guys. Seems like a yeah, like it would be a good hang, and then you get to play music on top of it. Yeah, yeah, it's all, it's always a good time. Speaking about those guys again, everybody seems to have like a kiss story because I know Denny had done this stuff where like worked. I think they were getting gear out for like a or going through like a storage thing. Shane said that he was doing that too. I think because like Ragman and stuff. So I've heard that that guy's name before, but then. So you even have a kiss story too. You said that Gene owes yeah. you six bucks. Yeah, I I worked during that whole time when I was uh, doing everything freelance. I worked with their like main in town guy. They were at SIR and they were rehearsing for. I think to be getting this wrong, but I'm pretty sure this is how it happened. They were rehearsing for a tour. They were going out and it was Kiss and Aerosmith. I think that they both went out and. I was down working rehearsals with the tech guys and everything else. Essentially, I was just down there loitering around, helping out with whatever it was that I, you know, I could if I needed to. I was working those rehearsals. The Kings of Leon guys, before they blew up, were rehearsing in the room next to us. And so we'd get all the guys set up and going, and then we'd slowly kind of start looking at each other, and one by one, we'd kind of file out of the room and uh, we could sit in a lounge right outside the door. And the, I remember the Kings of Leon guys were always hanging out at that time. And, uh, you know, if they stopped playing, we'd kind of rock, paper, scissors, who was going to go in there and check it out and see, you know, if they needed anything. So one day everybody's getting ready. Everybody's kind of filing in and showing up. And, uh, Gene comes up who is definitely my favorite kiss member. Gene comes up to me and he had already been, he'd been saying for, you know, the whole first week that they were in rehearsals is he's like, yeah, he's like, you know, you should be in a band. You should really be in a band. And I was like, okay, okay. Yeah. Thanks, Gene. You should be in a band. I was like, okay, thanks, Gene. No, I mean, you should really be in a band. And Scott was their uh, in-town guy at the time. And so he goes, uh, he goes, Scott, shouldn't he be in a band? And, Scott goes, yeah, he should. He's in a band with me because Scott and I have been uh, jamming. That was kind of the beginning of the icebreaker with Gene. 
So he comes up to me one day when everybody's filing in and he wanted to go next door to the deli and get a sandwich. He wanted to get something to eat. He said he didn't have any money on him. At the time, Darren from Steel Panther, he was he was working with Gene. He was kind of right-hand dude, like personal assistant kind of dude. And Darren was showing up to rehearsals later. So Gene was like, Josh, do you, do you have any money? Do you, you have any money? I was like, Gene, I got six bucks. He's like, I want to go over next door and get a sandwich. I was like, well, here's six bucks. He's like, great. He's like, when Darren comes back in, or when Darren gets here, I ask him for, for petty cash. Man, you... He loaned Gene Simmons six bucks. I'm never asking for that money back. I'd rather have him owe me six bucks till the day I die because it makes for such a, a much better story. Oh, yeah. Than, <laughs> yeah, than, than getting it back. So Gene went over and got his sandwich, and I got my story because, you know, he still owes me six bucks. One of the cool things about working with those guys was when you got your check from them, only Gene and Paul signed the checks. So you were always getting an autograph. Oh, um, cool. Which was kind of cool. I don't know if it's still like that or not, but that's the way it was way back in the way back in the day. I guess it's probably direct deposit now. So, yeah, I mean, nobody's getting their autograph. Yeah. I mean, back in those, like I was saying earlier, back in those freelance days, you know, I was grasping at anything I could. It did occur to me that I should have kept one of them uncashed just so I'd have it. You know, like I said, I did that, I think, for about a year and a half. So, Oh, cool. Um, that's how I met Dick Clark, which was actually pretty cool. The uh, Dick Clark's 50th the TV special. We stage managed that for them when Kiss played. So that was uh, that was pretty cool. I like the six buck story, but <laughs> man, I always liked Gene, man. Gene was always really cool. As a person, or is he like your favorite of the of the band members too or is it both or when i was a kid i really liked i really liked paul i thought you know i thought paul was really cool i really liked paul's songs but then after i started working for him and kind of getting to know him and stuff i think i just gravitated to gene maybe it's because gene was always teasing me to some aspect or another you know yeah because i can't remember who who had said it? Cause I know Denny and all those guys that we've named, they all have like kiss stories. Somebody said, I think it might've been Shane maybe or something. They were saying Gene was like, even when they were going through that stuff at the warehouse, Gene was doing like card tricks or something for people. Or it seems like he's more personable. Like you said, Gene just was a lot more personable, at least for me, you know, but it was cool. It was a cool experience, you know, getting to do that. And, getting to see everything in the warehouse at that time. Paul's guitars, Paul's, you know, mirror Iceman, the wardrobe cases of Kiss boots and, you know, all that warehouse has so much, and especially so much stuff, or at least at that time, has so much stuff from all, you know, all the different eras of Kiss. I know? picture it like the Indiana Jones or the Raiders of the Lost Ark warehouse, but it's like Kiss stuff. <laughs> or something I'll go exactly miles or something it was kind of like that i mean not at that grand scale at the end of raiders but it was kind of like like that there was just so much stuff everywhere definitely cool cool to see and cool thing to be a part of it oh yeah cool. how many people can say that they did that or even the six bucks story those are those early days in la were really cool you know there's a whole 
whole mess of stories kind of like that. I mean, I'd, I'd never had sushi before, but when I got out to LA and I was working with Melissa Etheridge and Kenny Arnoff was playing drums and Melissa always wanted to order sushi for dinner. And Kenny must've seen the look on my face when she said that we were ordering out for sushi. And he was like, man, you never had sushi before, have you? And I was like, no. And he goes, I got you. Just what a cool dude he is. He got me all the, you know, the easiest stuff if you're starting on sushi. You know, just looking out. So do you still eat sushi? I did a lot when I was in, not a lot, but I did semi-regular when I was in L.A. And since I've been in Nashville, I've had it once or twice, but it just, it just isn't the same for me. Probably like fresher being on the coast, I guess. Yeah, I don't know if that's just, you know, I mean, clearly they can get fresh fish here. So I don't know if it's just a psychological thing Hmm. or, or it just really is better. You know, you, I guess like with any restaurant, you find your haunts and your favorite places and, you know, nobody does the same dish at another restaurant exactly like the one that you like from the place that you know everybody's got their own thing which is great but yeah or you got the memory attached to yeah that i don't i don't really know but i don't really eat any any sushi hardly at all here um how'd you get hooked up with those guys because that zach st john but then i think you even posted a picture too with like zach and then there's that christian that He's done uh, a ton of stuff too. Like I guess I think Corey Taylor and I think he was Black Star Riders. Christian toured with Didi Ramon, was his guitar player for a little bit, and then when I met him, he was kind of starting to play around town a little bit, or he had been playing around town his own stuff for a little bit, and I had recorded this EP, which is where I met Zach. And I met the producer that recorded that EP through my bass player at the time, Carl Rather. So he kind of brought me into that whole circle and Carl knew Christian. So as things progressed and we started supporting these EPs and everything that it, that were coming out, that year of 2012, we went through a bunch of guitar players. All the guitar players were great. We were just, it was either like scheduling conflicts or we just couldn't find the right thing. And Zach and Carl had started playing with Christian and they were doing a three piece thing. And we were coming to Nashville to play with the Great Affairs and we were playing uh, at the Rutledge and then we were going to Knoxville. We needed a guitar player. Carl was like, dude, let's, let's take Christian, see if Christian wants to go. Christian, you know, being Christian, another just great dude was like, yeah, man, I'm in, you know, let's, let's do it. That was the, the lineup of the band all the way up until the end of 2012. Um, and they all, those guys just worked great together. So I'm not, I'm not surprised at all that that slot came open in black star writers and, you know, Zach's the guy. There's a song called without you that we shot a video for and, it's the four of us Christians in it, which that video was really fun. We uh, shot it at my, at my buddy's castle that he was the caretaker of. And I got to run around and reenact the uh, 
cross between the shining and american psycho oh cool. covered him that video was really cool but christian's in that one and yeah and christian has gone on to you know he's a member of stone sour uh he plays in Corey taylor's solo band but for as busy as he is you know we still keep in touch you know i still keep in touch with all those guys I've actually got that EP right in front of me because I said um, before I didn't have the I didn't have the um, all she wrote. When I saw Denny at that Boca Lounge, I did buy a couple of your CDs. He had like a Ziploc bag of some of them, and uh, oh, cool. And the one you were talking about is a Ignited EP because it's got yeah, without you on it, and it does. It lists Carl and uh, Zach on the back. Yeah, that was the first uh, first time I worked with Zach. First time I worked with Carl, too. Carl and I had been playing together for a little bit, just kind of kicking around the rehearsal room. But that was the first thing that Zach was on. And now Zach's been on so many things for me that I can't I can't name them. Though Out of those three EPs, Denny produced The Bittersweet. Kenny produced Dreamer's Disease. And then after Kenny produced The Dreamer's Disease was when we started talking about doing a full length, which then ultimately ended up becoming all she wrote down the line. Oh, cool. Um, so this was like the precursor for that one. Yeah. Those songs on the dreamers disease I had had for, you know, there's always some songs sitting on the shelf somewhere. So I had had those songs for a while. And, you know, Kenny, the band, when Kenny was in bone pony once a year, they would come out and uh, they would stay with us. And while they were doing shows in Southern California, we had talked about working together and talked about doing something. And I just gotten back, I think from Nashville doing that EP with Denny and Denny and I were talking about doing more songs and doing another EP. And in that time I was talking to Kenny, I was like, well, I've got these other four songs. Why don't we go ahead and do that? You know, I'll come back and we'll do those. And then, uh, while Kenny was doing, while we were doing the Dreamers Disease, Denny showed up to the studio, and then they started talking about getting together and doing something. And I think that was might have been you'd have to ask them, but I think that was might might have been the start of Denny and Kenny starting to work together after meeting on that session. Oh yeah, because it sounded like I didn't meet those guys actually until like 2014, but. It sounds like that's about the time where they put out that Die Youngs or something, because it was kind of some of their, how you're talking about albums or uh, songs that sometimes go to this project or this. Yeah. I think those are almost some of their quote, like air quote leftovers that they didn't use. And so they did something with them. Yeah. Yeah, it could be. You guys are just so creative and you're always coming up with something. It's like, yeah, you can't always fit it on this album or it doesn't fit that uh, vibe, right? Some people are like that, right? At this point, I have more songs on the shelf that nobody's heard than records I've released. Denny's a prolific writer, and I think that without actually conferring with him, I think it's pretty safe to say that I'm sure that he has a pretty elaborate back catalog of stuff that, you know, I'm sure has been demoed in some fashion or, or another, but probably hasn't seen the light of day yet. He could put out the Denny Smith vault, like the Gene Simmons vault. <laughs> there you go. Well, speaking of stuff, too, that you put out, 
you've got albums and then the EPs and stuff. There was one that really, I really dug, and I think I even messaged you about it. The Waiting, is it Waiting in the Wings? The one that's like the Elvis Costello style? Oh, yeah, yeah. We tracked that at the tracking room here in town that is no longer, I don't think it's still a studio, but that was tracked in the same session that the Huntington Hotel, the basic tracks for that were done. And that was always kind of meant to be a single, and then that's got uh, that's got Michael Webb on it doing all that great piano stuff and organ. That's got Brad Rice, who's played with like Ryan Adams and Keith Urban and Sunvolt, and he's played with all kinds of people. He's such a great player. Yeah, but I really dig that one. You know, that's a that's a cool little cool little tribute to Elvis Costello. I even tried to rip off the cover of My Aim Is True, so. Yeah, it is a cool tune. Yeah, yeah, I dig it. And I, I like the line in there or something. It was like, pants waiting for the flood. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was trying to describe the, the scene. Like if, you're, if your significant other was sitting on the floor and she's staring at that, they are staying, staring at the cover of that Elvis Costello record. And that whole first part of that song is trying to describe kind of what he's wearing on the cover and why she's so obsessed with him. You know, at least that was my intent for it. Somebody could listen to it and get something totally different. It was more meant as just an out and out tribute to Elvis Costello. Well, you did a good job. You knocked it out there. Well, thank you. Well, well, thanks, Josh. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me about all sorts of stuff. Kiss, your own albums, your time in California, learning the ropes, I guess, in the uh, studios. Yeah. Anytime, brother. All right, man. Maybe, yeah, we'll have to find something to do, like a follow-up, too. Yeah, that'd be cool. I totally appreciate you uh, chatting tonight, man. Yeah, anytime. Thank Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Huge thank you to Joshua Ketchbark for speaking with me for episode 96. Don't forget to check out his new album, released on July the 8th, called Blood. You can find it on all streaming platforms, and it's soon going to be released on physical formats as well. Here's his newest single, Covered in Blood.
Covered in blood. 